you're keeping an eye on this new piece of technology as it's developing, waiting for that window of, hey, this is going to make a huge improvement. I think for me personally, Descript was that. As soon as I found Descript, I jumped on learning it, learned everything that I could. Welcome to the Marketing Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. Join your host, Dots Oyobulu, as he learns from CMOs, seasoned marketers, and agency owners about the state of marketing, strategic marketing insights, and actionable steps for growth. Connect the dots and enjoy the latest episode. This episode is brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. If you're a business needing content promotion, podcast campaign production, or are looking to build effective B2B marketing strategies, Dots is here to offer you ultimate marketing leadership and expertise. Find out more at www.dotslovesmarketing.com. Hi, marketers. This is Dots, and welcome to the Marketing Leadership Podcast. With me here is Joshua Lorima, Podcast Lead and Creative Director at Content Allies, and we will be talking about podcast and content automation for marketers. I know you guys are ready, so let's get it. Hi, Josh. How are you doing? I'm pumped to be here, Dots. Thank you for inviting me to chat, man. I'm so excited. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. I'm just as excited as well and looking forward to really dive deep into this. You know, there's a lot of noise going on right now in terms of what's trending. So let's dive deep into that. But before then, I would like us to kick off with some details about you in terms of your background, your role, and why you love content marketing so much. Sure. So do not have a college degree. I'll start from there just to give myself as little credibility as possible. But I'm someone who formal education didn't work really well for. So by the sheer luck and I think good people and some grace, I found myself in like apprenticing some videographers and spent some time learning more creative craft, which most people don't really care what your credentials are when they just need you to make something cool. I think 2010, 2011, I basically found myself pursuing that just through opportunity and spent about seven, eight years doing content marketing, a little freelance, but also kind of growing in a position at a local church and going from unpaid intern to video editor to the, I had a whole video team that I was training and students I was teaching. I, then I became the marketing communications director for a time. And I was also preaching some. So I had like hand kind of in some communication and strategic planning for events and everything like that. And when you're working at a local church, and I would say some people would call it like a mega church, perhaps like 2,500 regular attendance. For me, what was cool about it was I got to do the creative, like pre-production stuff, live production stuff, editing. Like I kind of got to put my fingers in all the different pieces of creative and do a lot of really cool high-end production things. Yeah, it was like a greenhouse for me, like creatively. And then I went full independent. I left that job. And I just became an independent freelancer doing post-production and motion design for the most part in 2018. And then I found myself at Content Allies. And the asterisk I should probably add, like on all of this is in 2015, just for fun, I started a Dungeons and Dragons podcast with my friends. And back in 2015, iTunes was different. Like podcasts was a different space. And we have one of the best graphic designers in Nebraska, that's where I'm from, who made our logo for our podcast. And it just looked really stinking cool. I think that's the only reason we ended up on the front page of iTunes in like the first month. And I feel like ending up on the front page of iTunes sounds insane now, but that was like we stumbled into it and that kind of shot us on a trajectory of success through that podcasting space in that very niche 
And so that gave me a ton of experience just podcasting. And I was kind of doing all of the editing, kind of that production side of it. Learned a lot. It's amazing to me. So we at one point were getting around like 20,000 downloads an episode. And back then, like I remember being on the call with advertisers in like 2017, being like, hey, can we get some ad space? Can we do some stuff? And I got shot down all the time. They're like, we need to see double that number, triple that number. And now today, like 2023, I would have gotten so many ad deals. <laughs> like Those numbers would have been fantastic for most. It was a weird window of time in the podcasting space. But it gave me a lot of experience and is the reason why I think I was able to be an effective producer when Content Allies reached out to me. So I've been doing that for like almost two years now, I think. No, a little over a year, maybe longer. Very awesome background. Like, I just want to follow up on that with a little bit of topic here. I was also a marketer at a church back home in my home country. That's crazy. I didn't realize that until I looked at the document, by the way. Like, that's so cool. Would you like to share some of the key lessons when working with nonprofits? Like some of my own key lessons personally is sometimes you get to use your money for Facebook advertising. <laughs> like your own money? <laughs> your own money, yeah. And then sometimes like we are presenting this and then easy worship, which is what we use a lot then, stops working. You know, I'm like, oh, everybody's running. What's going on? And then the pastor is like, technical, John 3.16, technical. Technical, <laughs> you know, so what are some of the lessons you've learned working with nonprofits? I mean, I've worked with other nonprofits as well, political campaigns and so on. I mean, with nonprofits, the ROI is not the greatest determining factor always. And so, I mean, you have to have a sustainable revenue, right, to keep going. But at the end of the day, there's a usually a social or like humanitarian goal or like spiritual goal that supersedes that. And so in a for-profit organization, you're at the feet of the return, right? Like what the company is making is it successful. Are we growing at a church or sometimes even like I have friends who work at a kind of homeless shelter here in my city. And there really is less of a focus on are we building revenue and more of are we growing the capacity of what we're capable of contributing to our community? I like that because I am very like value centric in terms of what I want to pursue. So I get less hung up on metrics and I'm more interested in substance of content, of message. So I know one of like the big things I learned from working in nonprofit was when you're advertising a brand, I think this tracks across industries. I just think it's easier to get your head around it in nonprofits. The story is the center of everything. Like if you don't have a good story to tell, then you're failing your marketing. So, and a lot of times I think the idea is let's talk about how cool we are and all the different cool things that we do. But that message falls so flat when you're a nonprofit. Like the nonprofit, your best advertisement is the story of a, someone who was impacted by what you're providing, by your services. So like showcase the story, the services are just a background piece of this really cool person's experience. And so I think a lot more for-profits could benefit through that kind of storytelling. But it's really hard, I think, when you're inside a for-profit industry and everyone's trying to look like the coolest, you feel like you need to talk a big game. But man, I just feel like Good stories, good experiences are evergreen. They don't get old. They don't fall out with different trends. And I just feel like they're way more effective at getting people to figure out who you are, wanting to learn more. So if you're listening here, I think the biggest takeaway is it's not compulsory, but I will recommend you volunteering. You've got your job, you've got your side hustles. I think volunteering gives you a different perspective, not just as to professional life, but even marketing from that side of the spectrum. So that's awesome. All right. Unfortunately, 
we are going to be discussing in a for-profit context, B2B marketing. So, Absolutely. I'm happy to do that. No shade to for-profit industry, just to be clear. It's like everybody I work no with. No shade, right guys. <laughs> no shade. No shade at all. So the first trend we'll look at here in terms of content automation, podcast automation, and I'd like you to approach some of this generally, is the YouTube podcast or what I call videocast. So now YouTube has officially joined the space. It's currently in the US, but it's just a matter of time before it's released worldwide. From my perspective, it's met with great reviews. I've had some personal tests on, for myself and it's kind of looking good, but I guess there's a lot more to discover with this feature. And I think other podcast platforms have a reason to be scared. So what do you think when in regards to you know the timeline and in some of the predictions there? And let's dive deep into that and I can go into some other thoughts. Yeah. So it's what's been fun for me is like being inside the podcast industry while this is happening. We're constantly like seeing the 2021, we were seeing the whispers and some of the like Jake, he's kind of the founder of Content Allies and he and I will talk about this stuff. And he pointed out that there were some changes they had made to the way that podcasts were organized, but they hadn't said anything. There was no public release. There was no anything. So it was like, hey, things are changing. What's going on? Then some articles come out about some things changing in like early to mid 2022, a full on like deck was leaked, which is crazy to me. And then one of the things they featured was like that we we're going to expand their podcasting space. And the very first thought that I had was, what do they mean by podcasts? Because <laughs> so, I feel like there's some obscurity even in the industry as to like what a podcast is, technically speaking, where you go, OK, we talk about like competing channels like YouTube, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play all those different directories that house podcasts. And what's interesting to me is like, there's a ton of articles that have come out in the past couple of years about how YouTube is getting like the most streams, downloads for podcast listenership, more than iTunes, Spotify, and all that. But for me, my first thought was, yeah, but like iTunes and Spotify, they're just a funnel for content. They're not really like a housing place of content. So technically, all of that stuff that's getting posted to iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, Google Play, all of those different directories, they're all coming from the same feed, from a hosting feed. And so technically speaking, that hosting feed is the thing that's competing with YouTube, not really all these different platforms. It's kind of almost a whole ecosystem of podcast listenership that's audio focused. And so I immediately think, okay, if you combine all of the other stuff and those metrics and data, that's maybe going back to something like Libsyn, which is, I think, one of the more popular hosting services. How does that compare to YouTube? Because YouTube is a hosting platform, but they're also the through line. They're also the stream, which is funny to me because it's kind of a, such a unique animal because it grew up with the internet, basically. So we don't have a lot of things that are both the funnel for content and the host of that content, like with websites and images and movies and all this stuff. They're like separated industries kind of, but with YouTube, it's all the same thing. So my first thought with podcasting is, do they want to be a funnel for an RSS feed from something like Libsyn? Or are they looking to be like the hosting platform and then funnel out? Because technically, if you could pump an RSS feed out of YouTube into iTunes, into Spotify, they win. They win the whole game. So that made me think like they're poised to take over completely. If like a playlist can also output a full RSS feed that you can then drop into all those different directories. And then YouTube becomes this primary housing place. That's game ending for a lot of people. Yeah, you are blowing my head right now, to be honest, because I didn't think about that from that grand vision perspective. 
And just to throw a joke there, and not to make light of the economic recession we've had, but Google typically has a program, I don't know if they have it now, where people told to work on projects on freelance, and then there's like an award on the top projects. Gmail came out of that initiative. And my guess is that YouTube podcast came out of that initiative. And whoever the product owner was, was like, I'm going to bet my life on this. I'm going to bet my employment on this. And you have a lot of leaders at the top who are distracted with chat GPT. We'll discuss that in a second and say, why do we need this now? And there's a lot of back and forth. So that's why you tend to see, it feels like Google is having this, what I would call code fit in terms of releasing this. And I think two months ago or a month ago, the YouTube CEO resigned. I don't think it's because of YouTube podcast, but a lot of things are going on everywhere. I think brands are weary of taking risks these days, but based on some of the things you just said now, and I think my listeners are also echoing the same sentiment, I think you know there's a lot for them to gain here. And this is definitely better solution compared to Google Podcast. And please, you can maybe for a few minutes here, just dive deep into why this is really a major shift from YouTube podcast and this has come to stay. Uh, from Google podcast, I mean. Yes. So what I've seen a lot of people bring up when referring to like a new cool thing that Google's doing is they kind of will use Google Plus as a punching bag. Not everyone remembers about Google Plus. It was a great setup, but the culture wasn't in it. So that was like, they built like a really great social platform that just couldn't kick off with culture. So there's always the chance that Google's going to build something that could be like industry ending, like game changing, but then culture just doesn't decide to grab onto it. It's really hard, I think, for big companies to figure out where that pulse is and lock in. I think that's some of the cold feet is we could push really hard on a solution that we know is a good solution, but then there's the wild card of will people just ignore it and go to something else. But with the biggest difference for me with YouTube podcasts versus Google podcasts is Google podcasts is standing in that family of funnel platforms. It's there just getting a feed and sharing it. And YouTube, I think what's crazy is we don't pay to host our videos on YouTube. (laughs) I can host like 100 gigabytes of video on YouTube at no cost to myself. But if I want to do 150 megabytes on Libsyn a month, it's 20 bucks a month. So when you look at that, it's insane. I don't know why that is. Part of it is, I think, because Libsyn came much later than YouTube. I think YouTube established itself as a free hosting platform so early to so many people that it would just destroy them if they kind of made a hard line about having to pay for storage. So that's the other thing that I'm thinking is like, man, totally free. If you could post as many video podcasts as you want and they got it shared everywhere and it didn't cost you anything to host them, that's nuts too. That opens up the door for a lot of more people to get involved. Do you think they are going to maybe introduce you to podcast ads, you know, those in-stream ads. That's kind of where I'm sort of thinking with regards to the trends there. Yeah, because they have an excellent ad engine when it comes to video, and there's not really something equivalent in the podcasting space yet. But Libsyn does have like an ad. The Most of the big podcast hosts do have a way to integrate ads into your podcast. But the thing that made me think that YouTube isn't going to try and make this big play to own the podcast space is early this year, I think it's January or February, Libsyn announced a partnership with YouTube. So the fact that they're making those moves with a really big hosting platform makes me think that YouTube is either trying to get in on that space, that kind of that revenue source of what Libsyn is getting from podcasts and integrate it with YouTube, or they're trying to make a big play for owning that. In my mind, I mean, Google's big enough, right? They could probably just buy 
some of these races between like the podcast features, AI features between big companies, in my mind, it's hard to think about the race between those big companies because a lot of it is who's going to buy the smaller company that actually comes up with the solution that really solves the problem. Yeah, these are all interesting things. I think if you're listening here as a marketer or agency owner or just starting out your marketing career, you need to listen to some of the things that Josh has said in terms of the difference between hosting a podcast content or even having like an intro or prefix determined content distribution. And the fact that YouTube is trying to merge both worlds into one, and that gives access to other great things like accurate insights on your podcast, using podcasts as a top funnel content strategy in the sense of it's now more powerful for you to do that as a video and do that as audio. And some of the very many benefits of YouTube podcasts is just been out March this year. So if you are listening to this episode right now, feel free to share with your friends and get in front. Don't catch up. Be the trailblazer when it comes to using YouTube podcasts. I was just going to say, one of the things I shared with you when we were chatting about this conversation beforehand was whenever there's kind of a new thing being invented, it makes me think of this quote, and I can't remember who said it, but it's that the first person who made a urinal was an artist and the second was a plumber. So there is some very strong incentive right now to get at the front end of the cool things that are happening with podcasts and AI. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, we are just going to get into AI in the moment here. So let's look at the second bit, which is the scripts for podcasts. I am personally learning a lot about this, and I can't wait to learn from you in regards to some of your insights on that. But could you tell us how it works, the AI benefits, you know, so that some of our marketers listening or watching can really benefit from it? Feel free to take a bit of time on this and for, yeah, I could ask some follow-up questions. I think the first people that are going to notice the benefits of Descript are editors. And project managers may not fully understand like why this is such an incredible tool. But having an editing background, I was able to key in on it really quickly. So it's incredible. Basically, and typically when you're editing yourself, you're having to re-listen to the same piece of audio again and again to find the part you want to take out. Descript transcripts everything for you. And their auto transcription is one of the best that I've seen in terms of getting most of the words right. Even if it is a phonetical transcription of the word, it's way better than otter, way better. Typically, I'll find words that get completely missed in otter don't get missed in Descript. Usually, it's accents and names of things that get kind of screwed up. But even then, if I would just read what Descript said, usually it'll sound like the name. They're, they put in pretty good. You don't have to do it as much editing of the text, but I still would say it's computer generated, so not publish ready. However, that transcript is editable. And as you edit that transcript, you're literally editing the video. You're making changes to the actual timeline of your video. The tools there are all kind of AI backed. And so you have to be connected to the internet while you're using it. But man, it's incredible. In terms of like project workflow, it cleans so many things up when it comes to collaborative like project sharing. You're talking about working from a central edited file that you can then duplicate and share for social and all of that. You don't have to worry about your social video getting edited or mastered in a different way than your main video or the audio of the episode sounding somewhat different than the video. You can really like unify all of your post-production under one central point of truth, which is awesome to me. And because it's, it edits like a Word document, you can bring a lot of other team members in to work on it. You don't have to have just fully educated premier editors DaVinci Resolve people who understand color correction, 
You can bring in your writers. You can bring in your project managers to help work and edit with the workflow. If you need an adjustment on something, you don't have to like message your editor and say, hey, can you remove this one word? Anybody could jump in and clean it up. And there's a whole like comment tracking system. For team workflows, it kicks. But the other cool side of it, so the AI functionality is wild. They have their own huge list of stock images that you can use. So you don't have to like leave your editor and go look for stuff. The other thing is they have an AI-generated green screen removal that's better than any that I've seen. (laughs) Better than me spending two hours on After Effects to clean up a green screen. I literally can just drop an image and they auto clean it out really sharp, super nice. It made me cry a little bit the first time I did it. And they've got like live text features that you can take that transcript then and you can turn it into actual graphics and animation on top of the video that typically an editor would have to both get the transcript, implement it in the editing system, add it. It dumbed down the amount of time it takes dramatically, but it's also on a piece of software that is incredibly optimized. So it's not going to crash as much as Premiere does. It solves a lot of problems. I actually think it can work as a full end-to-end creative solution. Their goal, I think, is that you don't go to any other software, that you do everything from inside Descript. I've talked for a while, but if I could share one more thing about Descript. So the last thing I'll tag in here is their overdub feature, which is both scary and super, super cool. (laughs) Because basically you can teach Descript your voice. And then when you're cleaning up your audio, if you say like uh, the wrong year, that something happened or your fact checkers like, hey, this is wrong. You can literally go in and rewrite what you said and it will clean it up to sound exactly like you. And to me, that's wild. The other feature is if you're editing yourself, cutting off like the ends of words or anything like that, the AI feature can clean it up, can actually like identify those little blips and errors and make it sound natural. In terms of like using the overdub as a full narrator, it still sounds robotic. But for all of those little touch-ups and cleanups, insane, absolutely wild. Yeah, that's awesome. Josh, here's what's going to make me cry. What might make some of our marketing listeners cry as well, which is how much cost do you think, say, I have a hundred grand per year for a podcast initiative? What do you think introducing this script, which will have its, its own subscription, do in saving me a cost? You can just give a rough percentage. I think crazy cost. It depends on... Like, what's your output, really? So if if I want to do a big project with a bunch of editors who all need to have, like, access to a license on Adobe, that's like, you're talking between 50, 70 bucks per seat. That adds up so fast. And then Descript, you're really paying for the seats. It's really dictated by the number of hours transcribed. So yeah, I think you're saving money in terms of the cost of the software. I think where you're really saving money is in the time. And the fact that you're not constantly going back and forth for asynchronous team workflows. I don't feel comfortable giving a penny and dime, though. I'm very much the user. I'm like inside it using it. I don't really look at the money as much. Oh, our marketers are looking at the money because they are thinking, okay, I got to pitch this to my boss. But hey, wait, he's going to be worried about the cost. But, you know, to your credit, time is money. It's a popular phrase that I go by. So when you save time, you save money. Again, I guess it depends on your creative needs for the podcast or the content in this case. But ultimately, it's going to be a significant chunk is the message I'm getting there, Josh. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're saving tons of time with Descript, especially if you've got multiple people working on the same project. It's crazy more productive. Oh, okay, great. You did mention Adobe in your last comment there, and we are going to dive straight into that now. So, you know, they have a do-it-yourself image generator and they have a couple of other things as well. They've got some solutions in the audio recording space and it looks like they are doing a lot of things. 
So I would like to sort of, again, break this down and let us know what you think about how the solution is helping marketers, especially the creative ones, becoming more efficient and strategic at their work, which is the aim of most of my listeners here. Yeah. So it's called Adobe Firefly. It's super recently got announced and I've signed up for the beta. I haven't got in yet, but I'm watching everything they're pushing out about it. It's wild. To me, the really impactful thing that makes this, in my opinion, like the first utility case of a real AI image tool is that they're using Adobe stock images to inform the generation. So relatively speaking, that means that the images that you generate are all commercial use ready, which is like one of the biggest hurdles that current image generators have to face. OpenAI's image stuff, they all kind of have that contextual piece that you can't use this for commercial stuff yet. We're not ready for you to benefit financially off of the images you generate. And there's a lot of hubbub about the rights of AI imagery and can you be a published artist by just making AI art. So Adobe is clearing some of that by using their own stockpile. And the interesting feature of that to me is the precedent it sets that if I'm an independent artist and I have a really crazy cool style, I could create an image generator that's just feeding off of my style and then sell that and then actually sell my style and turn like what is typically a commission-based income into a passive income, which is wild to me. So there's a lot of artists that are against the AI image generation, but this to me is a good example of an effective way to implement AI art. And that's just a piece of Firefly. Like there's so many pulling in a 3D image and then asking it to put art on top of it. If what they're promoting is literally what Firefly is, you'll have to excuse me for a couple of weeks as I just go dark exploring <laughs> everything I can do with that software. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that's awesome. Again, listeners, yeah, Josh is trying to say if you are an artist or a creator, and uh, it's important to take note of what Adobe is doing. If you're able to be very efficient at creating your art, then you can literally sell the heck out of it, all these things. So in terms of the license, subscriptions, and you can make it even commission-based, and that's extra money for you, and you're making efficient impact to people as well. Before we move away from this, Josh, for social media managers, how do you think this AI tool is going to help them in general and many of the other solutions coming from Adobe? If we're trying to expand the scope of the Adobe solutions a little bit to content managers in general, social media managers, my guess is that a lot of them are listening now and they will be getting very much excited about the solution. So could you share some thoughts on how you think this will help them in general? Again, feel free to focus on the visuals or include some of the things that they are doing with audio as well. By day, I mean Adobe. Yeah. So if I'm a social media manager, my biggest issue is having enough content to publish. And so in my mind, the iterative process that you can kind of utilize Firefly for is wild. Let's say you're trying to promote a brand like a t-shirt or a shoe, and you just want to see a bunch of different people in different places wearing that piece of merch. And rather than having to hire a photographer, hire talent, go on photo shoots, have an approval process, you could literally do all of that from the seat of your chair at your computer, which is crazy. And then you could even and for, I mean, this is a little outside of maybe the social media marketers, but if you're doing any kind of design mock-ups, it's crazy how quickly you can start to implement like graphics on top of other pieces of like photos. So yeah, there's some absolutely wild stuff in terms of just generating a bunch of content for a brand. You can do a lot really quickly from what they're showcasing. Yeah, that's awesome. And of course, just to add to what Josh is saying there is also incredibly useful for B2B marketers as well. 
most of it starts out as B2B and then goes into the public. So that's nice. Now, Josh, are you ready for the next one? This one is a little wild. And that's the AI race right now. In 1969, it was the race between Russia and the US for the space race. But now it's the AI race in 2023. And it's between two companies in the US. I was just going to say, one of my favorite analogies I recently heard is that the beginning of the internet, the race was a land grab for space on the internet. Now all the lands grabbed and the different organizations are warring with each other. Oh, yeah, exactly. So it's interesting time, I would say. Have you tested the chat GPT-4 yet or no? I have. As soon as ChatGPT started showing up on like my TikTok feed, I jumped in, got in on it as quickly as I could. It's crazy. And what's funny to me is like AI itself isn't a new thing, you know, like machine learning, artificial intelligence, like solutions aren't necessarily like brand new, but ChatGPT kind of launched it, right? Like they created this cultural cyclone that no company could ignore. And so it really, I feel like it took that AI race to a fever pitch. And I don't think Microsoft owns them, but I think they did invest quite a bit into ChatGPT. So that's a markup for Microsoft. And how do you think Google is responding to this? I know they've got their AI as well, but in terms of like some of the creative things that they're doing to help those who are in the Google workspace, for example, and how that ties back into what people do for marketing. What do you think some of those cool things that creates more efficiency for Google lovers? I definitely think the fact that Google has a really strong ecosystem that they've created. And once you're in it, it's really hard to get out of it or to even see yourself getting out of it. I'm a fan. Maybe that's a little bit of a, what's it called? When you fall in love with your captor? <laughs> yeah, maybe I've just fallen in love with Google because it's just what I use all the time. <laughs> but what's really cool is, like I remember my sister went back to school to become an ER nurse and she was going to buy all the 360 stuff, all the spreadsheets and Word. And I, I was like, have you ever looked at Google? This was years ago. She's like, no. And I showed her all that for free. Just get a Gmail account. And you've got Word doc, you've got a spreadsheet. And the way that the AI is being implemented into emails, Google Docs, spreadsheets is bonkers. Like ChatGPT is more like, we don't really know where it's going to land in terms of like its utility. A lot of people speculate about how it could be used. But like Google and Adobe are both going, here's something that you can use immediately that will improve your workflow and project management right away. I mean, a lot of us have email lists on a Google spreadsheet, right? But imagine being able to create a campaign that's AI generated. You just input all those emails with any of like the information and name, and then it auto creates unique emails for each of the different people on your list. Like that's really cool. Yeah. And even in script writing as well, like you're writing for some ad or you're writing scripts for your podcast resources or things like that. That efficiency, do you think is going to play a big role? Huge because the biggest issue with Chat GPT is that it speaks with its full chest. Like anything that Chat GPT tells you, it tells you as fact, even if it's not true. So, the very first thing, because everyone was explaining all this crazy stuff when it was first popping up, and I was like, wow, that's wild. People are having it fix their code. They're asking it how to like build something, how to make a pie. It's giving them all this information. And I didn't see a lot of people like fact checking that information. So, as soon as I got in that very first week, I'm a big fan of origami. So, I started asking it how to fold different origami creatures and it gave me the exact same instructions on how to fold a turtle, a crane, and it's completely bogus. And so it's like it had all the words right, 
but there's no way that the instructions were correct. And now this is part of the conversation around these generated AI prompts is fact checking them and like going back and saying like, is this legit? So I think like giving a chat generation tool, whether it's the one that Google's using for email or docs or chat GPT-4, giving them a blank slate is not good. I think that once you identify like, how can we use this to supplement something we already are having to do and improve the speed at which we do it while we're the ones kind of checking to make sure that the text falls in line correctly with what we want to do. So I want to write an email about the next steps on a project. I add a bullet point and I just say, make me an email with these bullet points as next steps. Auto generates the email. That's huge time saver. I take forever to write emails and I can just say, make it professional and spelled correctly. That would clear the road for someone like myself, at least. I see that as very useful. Yeah. And I think just to add to what you're saying, you know, I think the biggest learning for me from what you're saying is that Microsoft is trying to build its empire. Maybe they got a little bit distracted within the past decade. Google already has an established ecosystem. You have AI-generated video chapters on content. You have AI-generated subtitles and some of these other AI-generated products. Even when you go into the ad space, that's a new, a different beast altogether. You know, you have Google robots now telling marketers how to optimize their ads and some of these other cool stuff within the Google ecosystem. But I think Microsoft CEO said, they are ready to dance with Google. He's really excited about this dance. I'm paraphrasing, but he used the word dance, literally. And I think some of the things that you could also touch on is, in general, where do you see the industry? Yeah, we have all these big companies like Adobe, Google, Microsoft, but could it be that they are still scratching the surface as we get to the road of singularity here? Yes, I definitely think the best case scenario, in my opinion, is if we win from their race, and the only way I see like the users winning is if there's one like really standout successful usage of these kind of AI tools that then becomes uniform where it's the same across Google and Microsoft. My biggest grump with the Google Microsoft world is they just hate working with each other technologically. So like scheduling calendar events between Google users and Microsoft users is a headache from both angles. And honestly, I'd love them both if they just fixed that. My issue is like, are we racing towards two different finish lines or one? Because the two different finish lines, I feel like nobody wins. Like, I love the analogy of the electric guitar, right? It gets invented and then it takes, what, like 30 years before Jimi Hendrix shows us how you can actually use an electric guitar. So I think right now everyone's building the technology, but we haven't found our Hendrix yet. That's going to basically define what this technology can really look like and how people are going to enjoy interacting with it. So yeah, when that happens... My hope is that both companies just jump in, kind of like Blu-ray, like that another race that Microsoft lost. <laughs> yeah, I just learned a quote in the corporate world here, which is, are we racing towards the same finish line or different finish lines? So we will leave that to the big bosses to take care of. But if you're here, if you're a marketer, don't be too excited about all these exciting things we're talking about. Basically, as Josh keeps iterating and hammering on, is is it a use case for your marketing situation? That's it. Pick what works. If you like, learn extra things so that you can sound good to your friends at the beer parlor. Other than that, it doesn't really matter. It's really where I'm going here. I'm about to put your career on the line, Josh. So. <laughs> Thanks for having me on the podcast. Who, who, who wins between Google and Microsoft in this AI race? Heavily publicized AI race for that matter. Yeah, I'm definitely a Google boy. I'm a Google user through and through. And 
I just I don't like teams. <laughs> but yeah, nothing against people who use those. But yeah, I'm definitely I'm, I'm rooting for Google. Sorry, Microsoft. Yeah, Microsoft, if you see him on the streets, you know what to do. So I really liked Halo. I liked Halo. That was a great game you guys did years ago on Xbox. Good job. You know, I'll still root for you. Come up with good stuff. I'm here for the stuff. So the things that you're making, whoever makes it, I'm in. Absolutely. That's great. Okay. Wait, where are you, Dots? You're going to put me on the line. Where are you at in the race? <laughs> Honestly, I think I'm going to go with you, Josh. I use a lot of things Google right now. I was going to buy a Google Pixel phone some weeks ago. And my folks in the house were like, guy, you are going too far. I use YouTube music. I don't use Spotify. That's how Google addicted I am. So yeah, I think I will go on your way then. We will be on the hit list together. Microsoft's hit list. <laughs> you know. All right. So as we move forward here, I'm sure listeners are having a good time, viewers as well. And I did mention why in response to your earlier thoughts there on trends, approaching trends generally. So there are different groups of people who are like the first movers when it comes to the diffusion of innovation, and then some that are just laggards. So where would you advise marketers should rather be when it comes to some of this trend? I think if you're a marketer, you should be following every piece of news that's coming out about what people are doing with AI. If you're a marketer, you're not really probably interested in the cutting edge of the technology. You're just interested in like, when is this thing going to be in a way that I can utilize it? Because there's like, there's two points of innovation with this kind of technology, right? You have the inception point of innovation, like creating the tool. And then you have the use case where it's like someone, lots of people create tools, then people break them and find like crazy ways to use them or really cool things to do that even the creators couldn't have envisioned. Like electric tar is a perfect example. So as a marketer, you want to be Jimi Hendrix. You want to be the one that like, you're keeping an eye on this new piece of technology as it's developing, waiting for that window of, hey, this is going to make a huge improvement. I think for me personally, Descript was that. As soon as I found Descript, I jumped on learning it, learned everything that I could, and then immediately pitched it to the Content Allies team, to Jake, and it got greenlit really quickly because it's going to improve so much of what we do. And yeah, when we talked to the Descript people and they were telling us one or two of the other podcast groups that are moving their whole workflow to Descript, I don't think I can say anything about who they were, but it was like, okay, we're making the right move. And yeah, so I think that when your early adoption of a good utility case for a tool, that's really good. That's where I think there's the sweet spot for marketers. Yeah, that's awesome. Again, just to pick your brain a little bit more, what have you seen with regards to some of the analytics that have come with some of these solutions that we've been talking about? Are they improved? Are they the same? Functionality is one thing. Being able to judge the effects of your function is another thing and to be able to justify why you are using it. So could you share some thoughts on that for quite a bit? That would be like kind of how like AI tools are gathering analytics. Yeah. For example, that would be a perfect example, actually. Yeah. So one of the things that I find really interesting about like machine learning, I know that's kind of AI adjacent, but we train these bots or whatever to do a task. And then we have a bot that judges how well they do it. And then that's kind of that iterative process of picking the best of the lot duplicating it, then picking the best and duplicating to kind of refine that tool. So to me, with AI, there's always going to be some level of ambiguity, I feel like, in what it accomplishes. So I'm curious in myself personally, how effective like AI generated analytics will be unless they're just built off of hard data. That would be kind of if I can't see the back end of where that information is being like aggregated. I think where it seems cool is if I just go to an AI tool and I say, here's a bunch of data that I have, show me what's interesting about it. That's cool to me. 
that's where you can probably find trends you didn't see before. One of the things that I think this is super left field, so Dots, cut me off if I'm going like off script, but I think there's a lot of room in the B2B podcasting space for authors. Like we have a lot of people establishing themselves as thought leaders, putting in half a year, two years of podcasting interviews and things. The next thing in my mind, if you want to establish yourself as a thought leader is to become an author, publish a book, and then like actually have something physical to show for all of that thought leadership. And one of the hardest things is you now have all this content. Let's say you've got like a year of podcasting content, and then you want to go through it. You have to curate, comb through, find trends, ideas that are that like are consistent throughout. You could identify like a subject that in the past year was super critical, but you maybe didn't notice because it was just spread throughout all the different conversations, pieces of content. So the idea of working with an AI tool to like aggregate or curate like trends in a big swath of content would be wild. That would actually be really cool to me. I don't know if that's in line with the analytics thing you're saying, but it just came to mind. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess that's a very good example of how to say that, right? Using a podcast is also a very good example. And I'm just as curious as yourself with regards to how some of these tools, yeah, they are not all nice and great. For example, the YouTube podcast, they also promise, aside from the capabilities of YouTube and the podcasting space, they also promise podcast analytics. And this is a very good case of an industry where we are so underserved in terms of data. Like we don't have the right data. We don't have sufficient data to be able to show attribution of our podcast initiative. So it will be exciting to see what new things that, for example, YouTube podcasts can you know, bring to the table in terms of showing visibility to marketers. And then they can take that information to optimize and iterate. And for Descript, for example, I think from what you just said, I've heard a lot of good things so far about that. So how those things can be translated into data that can be used to even further optimize is important. I think the other thing I'm taking from your learnings here in general for this episode is if you're a marketer out there, AI will continue to grow. So you want to be the strategist, no matter what you sell. This actually shows for every way of life. But for marketers, most especially in an age of ROI, you should be the strategist. You should be the one saying, okay, AI, this is what I wanted to do. However, way you want to push that brief or strategy or guidance to that AI, that is where you will need to build your career to. That is the kind of exposure that you need to get to so you don't get left behind, as they say. There's a lot of like fear around like the impact that AI is going to have on different jobs and throughout a bunch of different industries. But to me, the thing we should be looking at isn't like, is this going to replace my job? The thing is, how will this make my job better? The ideal scenario is that we get to the place where the human factor is the most important factor, but then you're not having to do a lot of the things that suck the life out of you. <laughs> sucks it on both ends, right? You become mundane and tired. And then at the end of the day, the business say we are looking for efficient and strategic people. So again, I think this is a, the greatest advice for this time. And especially with the different trends that we are seeing in marketing automation. Okay. It's been an exciting one. And I would like you to tell us where uh, marketers can find you. We have CMOs, agency owners, directors, business owners in the podcast. And I'm sure they will be intrigued with all you've said so far and would like to contact you to see if you can help them execute on some of these innovative digital transformations. Yeah, absolutely. So you can always email me at lormermedia at gmail.com or they can find me on LinkedIn, Joshua Lormer. 
pretty much anywhere else you look for me online is pretty Dungeons and Dragons centric to my personal podcast that is communicating with that audience. But LinkedIn, email, those are great ways to connect with me. Yeah. Okay, great. So guys, thank you for listening. That's all we have for today. See more episodes about Dots Loves Marketing by going to our website at dotslovesmarketing.com and subscribe to the Marketing Leadership Podcast on Apple and Spotify. Till next episode, connect the dots. Thank you for listening to the Marketing Leadership Podcast, brought to you by Dots Loves Marketing. There will be links to any resources mentioned in today's show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a five-star review and be sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. 